Welcome to Sarah's Bookshelf. That's me, Sarah, and I am so excited to have you here with me. This is a podcast where I share my love of literature and storytelling with you, and together we get to read some of the world's best stories. So let's get started. Today, we are continuing the novel Around the World in 80 Days, written by Jules Verne. It was published in 1872 and is one of Verne's best-known works. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, I recommend you start there. Chapter 5, in which a new species of funds, unknown to the moneyed men, appears on change. Phileas Fogg rightly suspected that his departure from London would create a lively sensation at the West End. The news of the bet spread through the Reform Club and afforded an exciting topic of conversation to its members. From the club, it soon got into the papers throughout England. The boasted tour of the world was talked about, disputed, argued with as much warmth as if the subject were another Alabama claim. Some took sides with Phileas Fogg, but the large majority shook their heads and declared against him. It was absurd, impossible, they declared, that the tour of the world could be made, except theoretically and on paper, in this minimum of time, and with the existing means of travelling. The Times, Standard, Morning Post, and Daily News, and twenty other highly respectable newspapers scouted Mr. Fogg's project as madness. The Daily Telegraph alone hesitatingly supported him. People in general thought him a lunatic, and blamed his Reform Club friends for having accepted a wager which betrayed the mental aberration of its proposer. Articles no less passionate than logical appeared on the question, for geography is one of the pet subjects of the English. And the columns devoted to Phileas Fogg's venture were eagerly devoured by all classes of readers. At first, some rash individuals, principally of the gentler sex, espoused his cause, which became still more popular when the Illustrated London News came out with his portrait copied from a photograph in the Reform Club. A few readers of the Daily Telegraph even dared to say, why not, after all, stranger things have come to pass. At last, a long article appeared on the 7th of October in the Bulletin of the Royal Geographical Society, which treated the question from every point of view and demonstrated the utter folly of the enterprise. Everything, it said, was against the travellers, every obstacle imposed alike by man and by nature. A miraculous agreement of the times of departure and arrival, which was impossible, was absolutely necessary to his success. 
he might, perhaps, reckon on the arrival of trains at the designated hours in Europe, where the distances were relatively moderate. But when he calculated upon crossing India in three days, and the United States in seven, could he rely beyond misgiving upon accomplishing his task? There were accidents to machinery, the liability of trains to run off the line, collisions, bad weather, the blocking up by snow. Were not all of these against Phileas Fogg? Would he not find himself, when travelling by steamer in winter, at the mercy of the winds and fogs? Is it uncommon for the best ocean steamers to be two or three days behind time? But a single delay would suffice to fatally break the chain of communication. Should Phileas Fogg once miss, even by an hour, a steamer, he would have to wait for the next, and that would irrevocably render his attempt vain. This article made a great deal of noise, and, being copied into all the papers, seriously depressed the advocates of the rash tourist. Everybody knows that England is the world of betting men, who are of a higher class than mere gamblers. To bet is the English temperament. Not only the members of the reform, but the general public, made heavy wagers for or against Phileas Fogg, who was set down in the betting books as if he were a racehorse. Bonds were issued and made their appearance on change. Phileas Fogg bonds were offered at par or at a premium, and a great business was done in them. But five days after the article in the Bulletin of the Geographical Society appeared, the demand began to subside. Phileas Fogg declined. They were offered by packages, at first of five, then of ten, until at last nobody would take less than twenty, fifty, a hundred. Lord Albemarle, an elderly paralytic gentleman, was now the only advocate of Phileas Fogg left. This noble lord, who was fastened to his chair, would have given his fortune to be able to make the tour of the world. If it took ten years, and he bet five thousand pounds on Phileas Fogg. When the folly as well as the uselessness of the adventure was pointed out to him, he contented himself with replying, If the thing is feasible, the first to do it ought to be an Englishman. The Fogg party dwindled more and more, everybody was going against him, and the bets stood a hundred and fifty and two hundred to one. And a week after his departure, an incident occurred which deprived him of backers of any price. The commissioner of police was sitting in his office at nine o'clock one evening, when the following telegraph dispatch was put into his hands. Suez to London. Rowan, commissioner of police, Scotland Yard. I've found the bank robber, Phileas Fogg. Send without delay warrant of arrest to Bombay. Fix detective. The effect of this dispatch was instantaneous. The polished gentleman disappeared to give place to the bank robber. His photograph, which was hung with those of the rest of the members at the Reform Club, was minutely examined, and it betrayed, feature by feature, the description of the robber which had been provided to the police. The mysterious habits of Phileas Fogg were recalled, his solitary ways, 
his sudden departure, and it seemed clear that, in undertaking a tour round the world on the pretext of a wager, he had had no other end in view than to elude the detectives and throw them off his track. Chapter 6, in which Fix, the detective, betrays a very natural impatience. The circumstances under which this telegraphic dispatch about Phileas Fogg was sent were as follows. The steamer Mongolia, belonging to the Peninsular and Oriental Company, built of iron, of 2,800 tons burden, and 500 horsepower, was due at 11 o'clock a.m. on Wednesday, the 9th of October, at Suez. The Mongolia plied regularly between Brindisi and Bombay via the Suez Canal, and was one of the fastest steamers belonging to the company, always making more than 10 knots an hour between Brindisi and Suez, and nine and a half between Suez and Bombay. Two men were promenading up and down the wharves among the crowd of natives and strangers who were sojourning at this once straggling village. Now, thanks to the enterprise of Monsieur Lesseps, a fast-growing town. One was the British consul at Suez, who, despite the prophecies of the English government and the unfavourable predictions of Stevenson, was in the habit of seeing, from his office window, English ships daily passing to and fro on the Great Canal, by which the old roundabout route from England to India by the Cape of Good Hope was abridged by at least a half. The other was a small, slight-built personage with a nervous, intelligent face and bright eyes peering out from under eyebrows which he was incessantly twitching. He was just now manifesting unmistakable signs of impatience, nervously pacing up and down and unable to stand still for a moment. This was Fix, one of the detectives who had been dispatched from England in search of the bank robber. It was his task to narrowly watch every passenger who arrived at Suez, and to follow up all who seemed to be suspicious characters, or bore a resemblance to the description of the criminal, which he had received two days before from the police headquarters at London. The detective was evidently inspired by the hope of obtaining the splendid reward, which would be the prize of success, and awaited with a feverish impatience, easy to understand, the arrival of the steamer Mongolia. So you say, Consul, asked he for the twentieth time, that this steamer is never behind time? No, Mr. Fix, replied the Consul. She was bespoken yesterday at Port Said, and the rest of the way is of no account to such a craft. I repeat that the Mongolia has been in advance of the time required by the company's regulations and gained the prize awarded for excess of speed. Does she come directly from Brindisi? Directly from Brindisi. She takes on the Indian mails there, and she left there Saturday at 5 p.m. Have patience, Mr. Fix. She will not be late. But really, I don't see how, from the description you have, you will be able to recognize your man, even if he is on board the Mongolia. 
a man rather feels the presence of these fellows, Consul, than recognizes them. You must have a scent for them, and a scent is like a sixth sense, which combines hearing, seeing, and smelling. I've arrested more than one of these gentlemen in my time, and if my thief is on board, I'll answer for it. He'll not slip through my fingers. I hope so, Mr. Fix, for it was a heavy robbery. A magnificent robbery, Consul. Fifty-five thousand pounds. We don't often have such windfalls. Burglars are getting to be so contemptible nowadays. A fellow gets hung for a handful of shillings. Mr. Fix, said the consul, I like your way of talking, and hope you'll succeed, but I fear you will find it far from easy. Don't you see, the description which you have there has a singular resemblance to an honest man. Consul, remarked the detective dogmatically, great robbers always resemble honest folks. Fellows who have rascally faces have only one course to take, and that is to remain honest. Otherwise, they would be arrested offhand. The artistic thing is, to unmask honest countenances. It's no light task, I admit, but a real art. Mr. Fix, evidently, was not wanting in a tinge of self-conceit. Little by little, the scene on the quay became more animated. Sailors of various nations, merchants, shipbrokers, porters, fellas, bustled to and fro as if the steamer were immediately expected. The weather was clear and slightly chilly. The minarets of the town loomed above the houses in the pale rays of the sunshine. A jetty pier, some two thousand yards long, extended into the roadstead. A number of fishing smacks and coasting boats, some retaining the fantastic fashion of ancient galleys, were discernible on the Red Sea. As he passed along the busy crowd, Fix, according to habit, scrutinized the passers-by with a keen, rapid glance. It was now half-past ten. "'The steamer doesn't come,' he explained as the port clock struck. "'She can't be far off now,' returned his companion. "'How long will she stop at Suez?' Four hours. Long enough to get in her coal.' It is 1,310 miles from Suez to Aden, at the other end of the Red Sea, and she has to take in a fresh coal supply. And does she go from Suez directly to Bombay? Without putting in anywhere. Good, said Fix. If the robber is on board, he will no doubt get off at Suez, so as to reach the Dutch or French colonies in Asia by some other route. He ought to know that he would not be safe an hour in India which is English soil. Unless, objected the consul, he is exceptionally shrewd. An English criminal, you know, is always better concealed in London than anywhere else. This observation furnished the detective food for thought. And meanwhile, the consul went away to his office. Fix, left alone, was more impatient than ever, having a presentiment that the robber was on board the Mongolia. If he had indeed left London intending to reach the New World, he would naturally take the route via India, 
which was less watched and more difficult to watch than that of the Atlantic. But Fix's reflections were soon interrupted by a succession of sharp whistles, which announced the arrival of the Mongolia. The porters and fellas rushed down the quay, and a dozen boats pushed off from the shore to go and meet the steamer. Soon, her gigantic hull appeared passing along between the banks, and eleven o'clock struck as she anchored in the road. She brought an unusual number of passengers, some of whom remained on deck to scan the picturesque panorama of the town, while the greater part disembarked in the boats and landed on the quay. Fix took up a position, and carefully examined each face and figure which made its appearance. Presently, one of the passengers, after vigorously pushing his way through the importunate crowd of porters, came up to him and politely asked if he could point out the English consulate, at the same time showing a passport which he wished to have viséed. Fix instinctively took the passport and with a rapid glance read the description of its bearer. An involuntary motion of surprise nearly escaped him, for the description in the passport was identical with that of the bank robber, which he had received from Scotland Yard. "'Is this your passport?' asked he. "'No, it's my master's.' "'And your master is...?' "'He stayed on board.' "'But he must go to the consuls in person, so as to establish his identity.' "'Oh, is that necessary?' "'Quite indispensable.' "'And where is the consulate?' "'There, on the corner of the square,' said Fix, pointing to a house two hundred steps off. "'I'll go and fetch my master, who won't be much pleased, however, to be disturbed.' The passenger bowed to Fix and returned to the steamer. Chapter 7 Which once more demonstrates the uselessness of passports as aids to detectives. The detective passed down the quay, and rapidly made his way to the consul's office, where he was at once admitted to the presence of that official. Consul, said he, without preamble, I have strong reasons for believing that my man is a passenger on the Mongolia. And he narrated what had just passed concerning the passport. Well, Mr. Fix, replied the consul, I shall not be sorry to see the rascal's face, but perhaps he won't come here, that is if he is the person you suppose him to be. A robber doesn't quite like to leave traces of his flight behind him, and besides, he is not obliged to have his passport countersigned. If he is as shrewd as I think he is, Consul, he will come. To have his passport visaed? Yes, passports are only good for annoying honest folks and aiding in the flight of rogues. I assure you it will be quite the thing for him to do, but I hope you will not visa the passport. Why not? If the passport is genuine, I have no right to refuse. Still, I must keep this man here until I can get a warrant to arrest him from London. Ah, that's your lookout. But I cannot. The consul did not finish his sentence, for as he spoke, a knock was heard at the door, and two strangers entered, 
one of whom was the servant whom Fix had met on the quay. The other, who was his master, held out his passport with the request that the consul would do him the favor to visa it. The consul took the document and carefully read it, whilst Fix observed, or rather devoured, the stranger with his eyes from a corner of the room. "'You are Mr. Phileas Fogg,' said the consul after reading the passport. "'I am. And this man is your servant?' He is a Frenchman named Passepartout. You are from London? Yes. And you are going to Bombay? Very good, sir. You know that a visa is useless and that no passport is required? I know it, sir, replied Phileas Fogg, but I wish to prove by your visa that I came by Suez. Very well, sir. The consul proceeded to sign and date the passport, after which he added his official seal. Mr. Fogg paid the customary fee, coldly bowed, and went out, followed by his servant. Well, queried the detective. Well, he looks and acts like a perfectly honest man, replied the consul. Possibly, but that is not the question. Do you think, consul, that this phlegmatic gentleman resembles, feature by feature, the robber whose description I have received? I concede that, but then, you know, all descriptions. I'll make certain of it, interrupted Fix. The servant seems to me less mysterious than the master. Besides, he's a Frenchman and can't help talking. Excuse me for a little while, Consul. Fix started off in search of Passepartout. Meanwhile, Mr. Fogg, after leaving the consulate, repaired to the quay gave some orders to Passepartout, went off to the Mongolia in a boat, and descended to his cabin. He took up his notebook, which contained the following memoranda. Left London, Wednesday, October 2nd, at 8.45 p.m. Reached Paris, Thursday, October 3rd, at 7.20 a.m. Left Paris, Thursday, at 8.40 a.m. Reached Turin, by Montsinus, Friday, October 4th, at 6.35 a.m. Left Turin, Friday at 7.20 a.m. Arrived at Brindisi, Saturday, October 5th, at 4 p.m. Sailed on the Mongolia, Saturday at 5 p.m. Reached Suez, Wednesday, October 9th, at 11 a.m. Total of hours spent, 158, or in days, six days and a half. These dates were inscribed in an itinerary divided into columns, indicating the month, the day of the month, and the day for the stipulated and actual arrivals at each principal point, Paris, Brindisi, Suez, Bombay, Calcutta, Singapore, Hong Kong, Yokohama, San Francisco, New York, and London. From the 2nd of October to the 21st of December and giving a space for setting down the gain made or the loss suffered on arrival at each locality. This methodical record thus contained an account of everything needed. And Mr. Fogg always knew whether he was behindhand or in advance of his time. On this Friday, October 9th, he noted his arrival at Suez and observed that he had as yet neither gained nor lost. He sat down quietly to breakfast in his cabin, never once thinking of inspecting the town. 
being one of those Englishmen who are wont to see foreign countries through the eyes of their domestics. Chapter 8, in which Passepartout talks rather more, perhaps, than is prudent. Fix soon rejoined Passepartout, who was lounging and looking about on the quay, as if he did not feel that he, at least, was obliged not to see anything. "'Well, my friend,' said the detective, coming up with him, "'is your passport visa?' "'Ah, it's you, is it, monsieur?' responded Passepartout. "'Thanks, yes, the passport is all right.' "'And you are looking about you?' "'Yes, but we travel so fast that I seem to be journeying in a dream. "'So this is Suez?' "'Yes. In Egypt?' "'Certainly in Egypt.' "'And in Africa?' "'In Africa.' "'In Africa!' repeated Passepartout. "'Just think, monsieur, I had no idea that we should go further than Paris, "'and all that I saw of Paris was between twenty minutes past seven "'and twenty minutes before nine in the morning.' between the northern and the Lyons stations, through the windows of a car, and in a driving rain. How I regret not having seen once more Père Lachaise and the circus in the Champs-Élysées. You are in a great hurry, then. I am not, but my master is. By the way, I must buy some shoes and shirts. We came away without trunks, only with a carpet bag. I will show you an excellent shop for getting what you want. Really, monsieur, you are very kind. And they walked off together, Passepartout chatting volubly as they went along. Above all, said he, don't let me lose the steamer. You have plenty of time. It's only twelve o'clock. Passepartout pulled out his big watch. Twelve? he exclaimed. Why, it's only eight minutes before ten. Your watch is slow. My watch? A family watch, monsieur, which has come down from my great-grandfather. It doesn't vary five minutes in the year. It's a perfect chronometer. Look, you. I see how it is, said Fix. You have kept London time, which is two hours behind that of Suez. You ought to regulate your watch at noon in each country. I regulate my watch? Never. Well, then, it will not agree with the sun. So much the worse for the sun, monsieur. The sun will be wrong, then. And the worthy fellow returned the watch to its fob with a defiant gesture. After a few minutes' silence, Fix resumed. You left London hastily, then? I rather think so. Last Friday at eight o'clock in the evening, Monsieur Fogg came home from his club. At three quarters of an hour afterwards, we were off. But where is your master going? Always straight ahead, he is going around the world. Round the world? cried Fix. Yes, and in eighty days. He says it is on a wager, but between us I don't believe a word of it. That wouldn't be common sense. There's something else in the wind. Ah, Mr. Fogg is a character, is he? I should say he was. Is he rich? No doubt. He is carrying an enormous sum in brand new banknotes with him. And he doesn't spare the money on the way either. He has offered a large reward to the engineer of the Mongolia, if he gets us to Bombay well in advance of time. And you have known your master a long time? Why, no. I entered his service the very day we left London. 
The effect of these replies upon the already suspicious and excited detective may be imagined. The hasty departure from London soon after the robbery, the large sum carried by Mr. Fogg, his eagerness to reach distant countries, the pretext of an eccentric and foolhardy bet, all confirmed Fix in his theory. He continued to pump poor Passepartout and learned that he really knew little or nothing of his master, who lived a solitary existence in London, was said to be rich, though no one knew whence came his riches, and was mysterious and impenetrable in his affairs and habits. Fix felt sure that Phileas Fogg would not land at Suez, but was really going on to Bombay. Is Bombay far from here? asked Passepartout. Pretty far. It is a ten days' voyage by sea. And in what country is Bombay? India. In Asia? Certainly. The deuce! I was going to tell you there's one thing that worries me. My burner. What burner? My gas burner, which I forgot to turn off, and which is at this moment burning at my expense. I have calculated, monsieur, that I lose two shillings every four and twenty hours, exactly six pence more than I earn. And you will understand that the longer our journey... Did Fix pay any attention to Passepartout's trouble about the gas? It is not probable. He was not listening, but was cogitating a project. Passepartout and... Passepartout and he had now reached the shop, where Fix left his companion to make his purchases, after recommending him not to miss the steamer, and hurried back to the consulate. Now that he was fully convinced, Fix had quite recovered his equanimity. Consul, said he, I have no longer any doubt. I have spotted my man. He passes himself off as an odd stick who is going round the world in eighty days. Then he's a sharp fellow, returned the consul, and counts on returning to London after putting the police uh, and counts on returning to London after putting the police of the two countries off his track. We'll see about that, replied Fix. But are you not mistaken? I am not mistaken. Why was this robber so anxious to prove by the visa that he had passed through Suez? Why, I have no idea, but listen to me. He reported in a few words the most important parts of his conversation with Passepartout. In short, said the consul, appearances are wholly against this man. And what are you going to do? Send a dispatch to London for a warrant of arrest to be dispatched instantly to Bombay. Take passage on board the Mongolia. Follow my rogue to India, and there, on English ground, arrest him politely, with my warrant in my hand and my hand on his shoulder. Having uttered these words with a cool, careless air, the detective took leave of the consul and repaired to the telegraph office, whence he sent the dispatch, which we have seen, to the London police office. A quarter of an hour later, found Fix, with a small bag in his hand, proceeding on board the Mongolia, and ere many moments longer, the noble steamer rode out at full steam upon the waters of the Red Sea. Chapter 9 In which the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean prove propitious to the designs of Phileas Fogg.
The distance between Suez and Aden is precisely 1,310 miles, and the regulations of the company allow the steamers 138 hours in which to traverse it. The Mongolia, thanks to the vigorous exertions of the engineer, seemed likely, so rapid was her speed, to reach her destination considerably within that time. The greater part of the passengers from Brindisi were bound for India, some for Bombay, others for Calcutta by way of Bombay, the nearest route thither now that a railway crosses the Indian peninsula. Among the passengers was a number of officials and military officers of various grades. The latter being either attached to the regular British forces or commanding the Sepoy troops, and receiving high salaries ever since the central government has assumed the powers of the East India Company. For the sub-lieutenants, get 280 pounds, brigadiers, 2,400 pounds, and generals of divisions, 4,000 pounds. What with the military men, a number of rich young Englishmen on their travels, and the hospitable efforts of the purser, the time passed quickly on the Mongolia. The best of fare was spread upon the cabin tables at breakfast, lunch, dinner, and the eight o'clock supper, and the ladies scrupulously changed their toilets twice a day. And the hours were whirled away when the sea was tranquil with music, dancing, and games. But the Red Sea is full of caprice, and often boisterous, like most long and narrow gulfs. When the wind came from the African or Asian coast, the Mongolia, with her long hull, rolled fearfully. Then the ladies speedily disappeared below. The pianos were silent, singing and dancing suddenly ceased. Yet the good ship plowed straight on, unretarded by wind or wave, towards the strait of Bab al-Mandeb. What was Phileas Fogg doing all this time? It might be thought that, in his anxiety, he would be constantly watching the changes of the wind, the disorderly raging of the billows, every chance, in short, which might force the Mongolia to slacken her speed, and thus interrupt his journey. But if he thought of these possibilities, he did not betray the fact by any outward sign. Always the same impassable member of the Reform Club, whom no incident could surprise as unvarying as the ship's chronometers, and seldom having the curiosity even to go upon the deck. He passed through the memorable scenes of the Red Sea with cold indifference, did not care to recognize the historic towns and villages which, along its borders, raised their picturesque outlines against the sky, and betrayed no fears of the dangers of the Arabic Gulf, which the old historians always spoke of with horror and upon which the ancient navigators never ventured without propitiating the gods by ample sacrifices. How did this eccentric personage pass his time on the Mongolia? He made his four hearty meals every day, regardless of the most persistent rolling and pitching on the part of the steamer. And he played whist indefatigably, for he had found partners as enthusiastic in the game as himself a tax collector, on the way to his post at Goa, the Reverend Decimus Smith, returning to his parish at Bombay, and a brigadier general of the English army, 
who was about to rejoin his brigade at Benares, made up the party, and, with Mr. Fogg, played whist by the hour together in absorbing silence. As for Passepartout, he, too, had escaped seasickness and took his meals conscientiously in the forward cabin. He rather enjoyed the voyage, for he was well-fed and well-lodged, took a great interest in the scenes through which they were passing, and consoled himself with the delusion that his master's whim would end at Bombay. He was pleased, on the day after leaving Suez, to find on deck the obliging person with whom he had walked and chatted on the quays. If I am not mistaken, said he, approaching this person, with his most amiable smile, you are the gentleman who so kindly volunteered to guide me at Suez. Ah, I quite recognize you. You are the servant of the strange Englishman. Just so, monsieur. Fix. Monsieur Fix, resumed Passepartout. I'm charmed to find you on board. Where are you bound? Like you, to Bombay. That's capital. Have you made this trip before? Several times. I am one of the agents of the Peninsular Company. Then you know India? Why, yes, replied Fix, who spoke cautiously. A curious place, this India? Oh, very curious. Mosques, minarets, temples, fakirs, pagodas, tigers, snakes, elephants. I hope you will have ample time to see the sights. I hope so, Monsieur Fix. You see, a man of sound sense ought not to spend his life jumping from a steamer upon a railway train, and from a railway train upon a steamer again, pretending to make the tour of the world in eighty days. No, all these gymnastics, you may be sure, will cease at Bombay. And Mr. Fogg is getting on well? Asked Fix in the most natural tone in the world. Quite well, and I too. I eat like a famished ogre. It's the sea air. But I never see your master on deck. Never. He hasn't the least curiosity. Do you know, Mr. Passepartout, that this pretended tour in eighty days may conceal some secret errand? Um, perhaps a diplomatic mission? Faith, Monsieur Fix, I assure you I know nothing about it, nor would I give half a crown to find out. After this meeting, Passepartout and Fix got into the habit of chatting together, the latter making it a point to gain the worthy man's confidence. He frequently offered him a glass of whiskey or pale ale in the steamer barroom, which Passepartout never failed to accept with graceful alacrity, mentally pronouncing Fix the best of good fellows. Meanwhile, the Mongolia was pushing forward rapidly, on the 13th, Mocha, surrounded by its ruined walls, whereupon date trees were growing, was sighted, and on the mountains beyond were espied vast coffee fields. Passepartout was ravished to behold this celebrated place, and thought that, with its circular walls and dismantled fort, it looked like an immense coffee cup and saucer. The following night, they passed through the Strait of Bab el-Mandeb, which means in Arabic the Bridge of Tears and the next day they put in at Steamer Point, northwest of Aden Harbour, to take in coal. 
This matter of fueling steamers is a serious one at such distances from the coal mines. It costs the Peninsular Company some 800,000 pounds a year. In these distant seas, coal is worth three or four pounds sterling a ton. The Mongolia had still 1,650 miles to traverse before reaching Bombay, and was obliged to remain four hours at Steamer Point to coal up. But this delay, as it was foreseen, did not affect Phileas Fogg's program. Besides, the Mongolia, instead of reaching Aden on the morning of the 15th, when she was due, arrived there on the evening of the 14th, a gain of 15 hours. Mr. Fogg and his servant went ashore to Aden to have the passport again visaed. Fix, unobserved, followed them. The visa procured, Mr. Fogg returned on board to resume his former habits, while Passepartout, according to custom, sauntered about among the mixed population of Somalis, Banyans, Parsis, Jews, Arabs, and Europeans, who comprised the 25,000 inhabitants of Aden. He gazed with wonder upon the fortifications which make this place the Gibraltar of the Indian Ocean, and the vast cisterns where the English engineers were still at work, two thousand years after the engineers of Solomon. Very curious, very curious, said Passepartout, said Passepartout to himself, on returning to the steamer. I see that it is by no means useless to travel if a man wants to see something new. At 6 p.m., the Mongolia slowly moved out of the roadstead and was soon once more on the Indian Ocean. She had 168 hours in which to reach Bombay, and the sea was favorable, the wind being in the northwest, and all sails aiding the engine. The steamer rolled but little. The ladies, in fresh toilets, reappeared on deck, and the singing and dancing were resumed. The trip was being accomplished most successfully, and Passepartout was enchanted with the congenial companion which chance had secured him in the person of the delightful Fix. On Sunday, October 20th, towards noon, they came in sight of the Indian coast. Two hours later, the pilot came on board. A range of hills lay against the sky in the horizon, and soon the rows of palms which adorn Bombay came distinctly into view. The steamer entered the road formed by the islands in the bay, and at half-past four she hauled up at the quays of Bombay. Phileas Fogg was in the act of finishing the thirty-third rubber of the voyage, and his partner and himself, having, by a bold stroke, captured all thirteen of the tricks, concluded this fine campaign with a brilliant victory. The Mongolia was due at Bombay on the 22nd. She arrived on the 20th. This was a gain to Phileas Fogg of two days since his departure from London, and he calmly entered the fact in the itinerary in the column of gains. Thank you for indulging in a story with me today. If you enjoyed it, please consider following and rating the podcast. 
it helps other people find and enjoy the show too. If you'd like to get in touch with me, there's an email in the show notes, and I'd love to hear from you. Our show music was composed by my dear friend Rachel Robinson, played by the wonderful Andreas Gateman, and audio engineered by the talented Devin Lamont from the band Crash Kick. Our episode album art was drawn by the exquisite Georgia McInnes. We'll be back next week with another wonderful story. Till next time, friends. <laughs>